Hello and welcome to the second edition of our podcast series. I'm Stephen Allen, McTavish's Marketing Director, and today I'm joined by our Chief Technical Officer, Rob Smart, and Managing Director, Heidi Carslaw. We're going to be discussing COVID-19 related claims and the situation facing policyholders today. Heidi, Rob, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. Albeit virtually, I should add. Um, Many of the businesses across the the UK have been looking to their insurance to recoup some of their COVID-19 related losses. Speaking in general terms, how many will be able to make valid claims, do you think? That's the million dollar question, uh, I guess, Steve. I think the first thing to say is not as many as the newspaper headlines might suggest um, over recent weeks um, since the FCA Supreme Court judgment came out in January. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, But I think the reality is that there's going to be a lot more policyholders that either aren't covered or in a grey area where they still have to fight for cover even after that case. Um, then are definitively given a sort of, you know, a, a, a clear view following that case that they are on a wording which has been given the green light. Because um, actually, you know, the, the scope of that uh, decision was quite limited in terms of only looking at certain types of extension clauses and only giving the green light to certain variants of them. Um, and actually, you know, that you know, affects a relatively small proportion of the total. Um, obviously, in addition to those, you've got you know the, the few companies that did buy genuine pandemic-specific cover, um, although those are relatively few. The sort of very famous example being the, the Wimbledon All England Lawn Tennis Club. Um, but I think across the, the wider pool of business interruption policyholders, which is you know most businesses out there, um, then the picture is still a little bit murky and a little bit mixed. Rob, you you referenced the FCA business interruption test case there, and obviously it's been very high profile, lots of media attention on it over over recent months. The aim was to speed up the process and and to help get some claims settled. But Heidi, I wondered, could you tell us a little bit about the background to what led the FCA to take that action? Yeah, well, when the pandemic first hit, some voices in the industry seemed to suggest that almost none of these losses were covered. But that simply wasn't the case. And so really, the FCA brought its action to bring some clarity to some of the key issues. To do so, it selected some of the more common wordings that it felt might provide cover, but that also might be contested. And I think it's interesting from a, from a process point of view as well. So that initial hearing um, happened in the late summer and the High Court judgment was in September. Um, and then following that, a number of points were appealed by both the FCA and insurers or the various participating insurers. Um, and that appeal process sort of leapfrogged into media stages and went straight to the Supreme Court to speed things up. And that judgment was handed down in January. Um, so I think, you know, it was a relatively condensed process and interesting to watch it all happening online. Um, but um, the reality is, although that final Supreme Court judgment was pretty favourable to the FCA and, and policyholders and that almost every appeal went their way, um, the scope of the action meant actually, you know, even of the 100 or so test wordings, um, there are probably only a sort of, I think, between three and five of them that, that went from a no position to a yes position. Along with others in the industry, you know, uh, we've been quite critical of the FCA's approach at times. And I think you've, you've mentioned some of the reasons why there, Rob. But could you explain a little bit more about why we've, we've kind of taken that view? Yeah, I think um, so. There, there's clearly a, a you know an unprecedented set of circumstances. Um, you know, most of the economy had suffered interruption as a result of COVID, with the exception of you know, a relatively small number of unaffected or, in very few cases, positively affected sectors. Um, and most of them were in a you know a policy where there was at least some grey area. Um, but I think the structure of the case was to take you know the sample, you know, relatively common sample wordings, but it's still a sample. 
Um, and of that hundred or so, that's still probably only, you know, no more than, you know, certainly not 10 or 20% of the total wordings that are out there. And there's a lot of minor variation between, you know, individual words and some of those extensions. Um, so if the FCA talk, I think about uh, 370,000 effective policyholders um, within the scope of those wordings, that's still a relatively small proportion of the total. And actually, those where there's a sort of definitive positive um, view of that wording is, you know, a small portion of that 370,000 even. So um, I think you're overall in a position and it's hard to get this from the headline that, you know, you're not looking you know, at, at hundreds of thousands of policyholders getting you know, clear cover from this. Maybe you're looking at you know, 50,000 and most of those covers are going to be a sublimited policy because it's under an extension. So you maybe have £50,000 or £100,000 worth of cover, um, even if your actual losses, you know, totaled into the millions. I think we also have to look at the fact that despite the fact that the action was brought to a close quite quickly by legal standards, it still took the best part of a year to reach its conclusion. And if you look at that, for many businesses that are struggling with cash flow problems, in commercial terms, a year is a really long time. We also felt that the industry and its regulator needed to adopt a broader solution, such as a government back scheme that could have helped businesses in the short term. And I think that that final point is really interesting, Heidi, because you know we were one of a, you know a small number, but still a minority of voices sort of taking that view early on. Um, and I think the contrast between that sort of you know more equitable um, sort of you know solution is that we're really in this position where it's a bit of a lottery what wording variant you have. Um, so if you have one of the sort of blessed uh, wordings that have been given the go ahead by the FCA and the Supreme Court, um, or whether you're on one which you know to a layperson looks identical and has one or two very slight wording differences, um, which are now being viewed as sorry that's a no not a yes. And I don't think it's you know unfair to say that those minor differences which are now being viewed as completely determinative were not well understood by the people selling these policies or the people buying these policies as being, you know, you do or don't have pandemic behind cover at the time. And that, I think, harks back to, you know, some of the wider points that Metavish has made for years on the industry in terms of, you know, the need to to do more work up front to understand, you know, what's what is covered uh, and what, you know, the risks are that that particular company faces. Uh, and I think this is just an, a, a really good example of that. It's a really interesting point, Robin, and really speaks to the complexity of, of policy wordings today and, and what the policyholder is faced with. I think one of the things that we found curious with that in mind was that the brokers have kind of been absent from this entire picture. Heidi, could you explain a little bit more about our position on that, please? Yeah, I think um, I think what we need to understand is what is actually the role of the broker, because on the one hand, they are client advisors, but on the other hand, they're actually distributors for the insurers. So we felt that the advice that brokers offered should have been part of the case. But as you mentioned earlier, Steve, it's a crux of this problem, the fact that policy wordings are just simply too complex. And I think even just boiling it down to sort of simple examples, so we've we've worked with a lot of policyholders that you know either do have cover based on the outcome of the Supreme Court judgment, or at least have a fair argument of cover. Um, and in a lot of those cases, they were told early on that they didn't. Um, and um, you know, and that was the view from the insurers, and it was also the view from the broker. Um, so I think you know it it seems likely that at least some of those policyholders that are in that position and may now find themselves unable to claim um, with with the passage of time. Um, but it may well bring that they do start to look at the, that advice and, and 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 start to think about you know was I misadvised by by the broker um, and if that does prompt the regulator to sort of bring greater clarity to the roles uh, the role of the broker in general terms then I think that that's probably a good thing longer term for the health of our industry. 
Certainly. Clearly, it's it's very difficult to distill all of this complexity down to kind of practical advice, if you like. But for those policyholders who do think that they might have a valid claim, what should they be doing now? Well, simply the first thing they should do if they haven't already done so is immediately notify the insurer of their potential to claim. The FCA did stipulate that the period over which the action and the appeals took place does not count towards the stated notification period. But nonetheless, the the clock is ticking. So if you think you have a valid claim, then get that notification in quickly. And I think that that absolutely got to be, you know, clearly correct advice, Heidi. Um, and I think applying to to almost everybody. Um, I think the the second thing to be worth flagging is, is to think about how actually we're presenting this claim. Because um, I think while the FCA case, you know, took a view on some wordings and took a direction beyond some principles, um, the reality is most of these claims will stand and fall based on the specifics of how it applies to a particular business and how that can be evidenced. Um, so, you know, how do we explain the impact on our business? How do we explain the you know, the evidence of a, whether it's a local case? Um, you know, and one point there from the FCA Supreme Court judgment was you know, the definition of what's a manifestation of disease. And that's actually pretty restrictive talking about you know, a positive test or a symptomatic person on site or, or on the premises. Um, and actually, you know, if you think about positive ca- positive tests prior to the first lockdown, which is when a lot of these claims relate to, you know, positive tests were essentially impossible to get outside of, a, of an in- intensive care unit. So some of these burden of proof issues uh, and in terms of you know, demonstrating the impact and the causality, et cetera, c- can be pretty tricky. And making sure you get that right when it when the claims presented is going to make a big difference to um, how that claim is treated. Yeah, and I think inevitably there will be a lot of disappointed policyholders out there. And I think we probably feel that this has is, is not been the industry's finest hour in a way. Thinking about about the long term, what do you think the impact of all of this will be? Um, I mean, I think it would be naive to think that there hasn't been a significant reputational sort of you know, damage to the industry that, that came through, particularly in the early part of the pandemic, when you know, there was clearly a massive economic dislocation. Um, you know, an event like this hadn't happened before, certainly hadn't happened with this degree of economic impact before. Um, and everybody was sort of struggling to adjust and survive. Um, and a lot of the theme early on um, was actually, well, where is the insurance industry? Because, you know, the early messaging was just none of this stuff's covered. Um, and I think, you know, we you know, have to admit that that reputation is, is going to have a long, long-term impact. And I think, Steve, it's worth also on this point, taking a step back from the insurance industry perspective for a moment. And I think, you know, as a society, I think we've faced a pretty profound change in how we view risk. Um, and, um, you know, and, and and some of the sort of you know, low probability events and, and the importance that they can take on. So we published a, a report last September, which is quite interesting, looking at, you know, pandemic preparedness amongst government and corporates. Um, and I think, you know, one of the surprising things there um, was actually how, how common epidemic risks are, um, even though most of them clearly don't turn into COVID. Um, but at comparative to that, how little time businesses and even governments and NGOs spend thinking about them and planning around them um, and actually how that had fallen off since the mid 2000 post SARS and MERS etc when um, you know the sort of recency bias starts to take over so if this event can sort of force us as an industry to sort of build the profile of you know uh, risk management and risk preparedness and you know planning for these sorts of events and covering them um, then you know long term structurally speaking that's got to be a positive for the industry. Certainly. And I think, you know, it's going to be a great deal of food for thought for all of us once the, the dust has kind of finally settled. Uh, thank you very much, Heidi and Rob. I thought it was a really interesting conversation.
Next week, we'll be joined by Colin Kelleher, who is a managing director of LHK Insurance. He's going to be discussing some of the challenges in the Irish market with us. But thank you very much for listening.